Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Good. I'm so excited to to have heard about your uh, time at Union. I don't know how if there's anything you want to say, but I am just so glad <laughs> that you're able to have this experience, and I love that you're learning. What we really ought to do is just start pressing pressing record when we like actually get on the phone. I, I, I don't think I've told anybody this or to, we told you guys this, but pretty much every time before we re- record, Derek and I are just catching up about life pretty much the entire time. And, you know, y'all don't want to hear all that stuff, but, you know, when I'm having adventures at school, I would love to keep you guys, like, included and, like, clued in on stuff because, you know, there's some cool stuff going on down here and there's some cool people that I'm meeting and some weird stuff that I got to do or some... So, like, for example... This uh, this past week was my birthday. Um, mm-hmm. It was Tuesday of last week, and it was a busy day. Like Tuesdays are without a doubt my busiest day on campus. I got seven hours of classes, and uh, one of my classes is a uh, is uh, called Race and Modernity with uh, Dr. Cornell West, who also happens to be my uh, my uh, my advisor here. So one of my I actually signed up to do a presentation in that class because a presentation is required for the class. And uh, my presentation was on the last half of uh, The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And um, yeah, basically I spent my birthday or that class on my birthday giving a presentation in front of my advisor. And it was really cool. You know, he praised the work that I did and uh, we got to talk about some of the nuance that I missed, which uh, uh, Dr. West is very good at doing without making you feel totally dumb. So, um, (laughs) you know, one of the... Yeah, one of the ideas I had brought up in my uh, presentation was an idea that I've expressed before. It's not like a secret to anybody who has, you know, you know, know me for a while. But uh, one of the uh, questions that W.E.B. Du Bois asks near the end of that work is, would America be America without her Negro people? And um, I had supposed in pondering that question Uh, Even though this is Du Bois when he was only 35 years old, so he's not quite as radical as he was later in his years, was he, in essence, at least planting the seed for black nationalism or more specifically separatism? So I started a conversation on uh, black separatism, of course, not as a permanent solution, but as an idea to consider. And, uh, you know, Dr. West validated that idea. Um which, you know, I thought was brave of him to do in that class, even though it is mm-hmm. at Union. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we got to talk about it for a, for a little while, and that was really cool. Uh, where we spent most of the time talking, though, was about uh, respectability politics and the nuance that uh, W.E.B. Du, W.E.B. Du Bois actually had to uh, tread with regard to respectability politics. Just this idea that black folks should act a certain way or act by white definitions of respectability in order to get ahead. So we had a, a very right. nuanced conversation about that, which was uh, which was fascinating. But anyway, that was my Tuesday. That's how I spent my birthday. Well, that's uh, good. I just had yeah. an idea of something yeah. really cool that would uh, help you engage your material and help our listeners. One thing to do would be to take a short quote from one of your readings and post it each week, and then have and then oh. talk about it, and then have a. Uh, listeners comment on it on social media and what it, the implications of it would be. I think that would be cool. All right. I might actually do that today because uh, one of those quotes actually made its way into my Come Follow Me study today. Uh, cool. So, you know, I might just do that. And it happens to be from somebody you quote all the time. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Yay. Anyway, um, yeah, we, me and Derek be talking, like, having whole conversations before the show actually starts. So, like, maybe one of these days we'll just record and just let tomorrow get all the grift out so you guys can just mm-hmm. hear what we be talking mm-hmm. about before we actually get into the Come Follow Me lesson. But anyway, um, what about you, man? You do anything exciting this week? No, I mean, I'm always excited to talk about the scriptures uh, because yeah. I have a lot to say. We should probably get started with our... <laughs> Indeed. Uh, today is going to be, you know, we only got two sections of the Doctrine and Covenants to discuss, but uh, I've seen Derek's notes. We are... Yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of, of things. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> Derek's probably going to read every single one of them. But so uh, with that, let's just go ahead and get right into it. But before we do, I want to remind you guys that we're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants section 109 and 110 today. Both of these scriptures are uh, pretty important to our history and our theology. Section 109 being the dedicatory prayer for uh, Kirtland, as well as uh, the closest thing to the day. Well, it was a straight up day of Pentecost, the only day of Pentecost that uh, we as a church have ever had. People were speaking tongues, speaking by the spirit. Children were speaking in tongues and all this other stuff. Uh, This was the first time we did the Hosanna shout thing. And uh, this was also a prepared uh, prayer for the occasion. So there's a lot of unique things happening, both historically and doctrinally, uh, in this section. And also in section 110, we get what uh, most Latter-day Saints, if not all Latter-day Saints, would regard as the second most significant Easter that has uh, ever occurred. We have a restoration of a priesthood keys, the coming of Moses, Elias, and Elijah, the acceptance of the Kirtland Temple as the Lord's house, so again, a lot of significantly historical and doctrinal things happening in uh, section 110. So, mm. Oh wait, I uh, now have something to say about that real quick. Okay, wonderful. So the first has to do with Pentecost, and when you look at the Acts 2 narrative, it's really radically liberatory. One, about the inclusiveness of it, because you get Jews mm-hmm. from every nation under heaven together speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. And eventually that is going to break into all uh, peoples of all nations, including the Gentiles. And the other thing is, notice that the direction of accessibility goes. Instead Mm. of magically making every person hear the words or learn the language, what happens is the other direction is it gets translated and everyone hears it in their own language. I think that's profound. A great symbol of the accommodation that's supposed to happen is that you reach people where they are, and this has so many implications for people on the margins, for disabled folks, and for um, LGBTQ folks, especially about like, how does this get translated? How do we reach people where they are and in terms that, that makes sense to them? Absolutely. And then the second thing about the Easter narrative is that it also has something today to say about liberation because it defeats the ultimate injustice, which is death. And if death can be defeated, if families can be restored and reunited, 
then there's nothing stopping us from defeating every injustice, every evil, every thing that would deny human flourishing. All of that can be defeated if death can be defeated. Yes. So sir. that's all I want to say about that. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. And I do want to touch upon that idea once we get to a discussion on uh, on section 110 where, uh, you know, the Lord talks a little bit about that in his introduction. So uh, where I would like to begin, at least with section 109, I don't know how often we have spoken about this on the show before, but I know that when we had uh, had Blair Osler on, we had this discussion about, uh, about the temple, generally speaking. We mm-hmm. have this kind of... Uh, we, we had this strange conflict with the temple, one that we shouldn't have. On the one hand, uh, temple attendance isn't exactly optional for the saints. This is where we do the work of receiving our endowments, the work of sealing ordinances, as well as ordinances for our dead. We're commanded to build temples and work in and worship in them. But on the other hand, temples like the church are hostile places for queer folks where things like heteronormativity and one could argue patriarchy are reinforced Mm -hmm. and gender binaries yes yes and because of the church's uh you know prejudice against queer folks and uh it's sustaining of heteronormativity gender binaries and other things many who are otherwise quote-unquote worthy cannot enter the temple and that is a problem that the church needs to address. Ironically, this dedicatory prayer asks that prejudices may give way before the truth. That's in uh, verse 56, I think. Uh, while I'm pretty sure that Joseph, when he gave this prayer, intended this to mean the prejudice of, uh, of those saints who uh, we would come across in our work of spreading the gospel, it's pretty obvious that our own prejudices also need to give way before the truth that the mission spoken of in this prayer might be accomplished. We've, we've already seen real time in person how our own prejudices as a church have gotten in our way of spreading the gospel abroad, have gotten in our way of making sure that the restored gospel is able, able to go to every you know, nation, kindred, and tongue. You know, we have queer folks, black folks, women, and other marginalized groups who straight up do not want to be part of this church because they don't think it is a safe place or a place that validates the identities that they hold. So uh, even though the intent of these verses was that prejudice may be removed from those who would receive us, I think it's also important to note that uh, that goes both ways. Our own prejudice has to be dissipated uh, in order to give way to the truth that all are alike unto God. And I will also note, I will also note that uh, this verse 56, where this is brought up, um, it's not thoroughly specified even who the prejudice uh, is that needs to, or who is holding the prejudice that needs to be dissipated. Though from context clues, you could probably conclude um, that it's the prejudice of those who would receive us. I, I think it still stands that... Uh, we need to dissipate our, we need to get rid of our own prejudice if we want our mission to uh, be able to be completed. So I just wanted to make sure that I put that out there before we really discuss anything about the temple, any theology about the temple, because uh, as necessary as the temple is to our theology, uh, the temple, culturally speaking and politically speaking, can be a harmful place to, uh, to folks on the margins. 
Yeah, let me say something about that. I think it was last week I talked about the power of being able to redraw the lines and not try to say play the game that is rigged against us, to, but to play a completely different game. Yes, sir. And obviously, I fully support flinging wide the temple doors and tearing the yes, veil sir. open so that all can access the temple. That being said, there's another sense in which we can reclaim dignity and power on our own terms by recognizing the whole point of our mortal existence is to see where God is on the move. And the temple is just one way of accessing God for a particular purpose at a particular time. But that's not the only way or even the primary way or the eternal way that God is made manifest. Not every generation has had a temple, right? There's times where right. the saints didn't have a temple. So what we need to realize is that instead, uh, going back to sort of riffing off what Jesus himself said in, in Mark chapter 2, the temple was made for people, not people for the temple. Like, it's there as a support, as an adjunct to what we're already doing. And we're not here to serve the dignity or functionality of the temple. It's the other way around. So that gets back to what about queer people? We see throughout the Bible, throughout all of our scriptures, about how God moves on the margins, is one with those on the margins. There's a preferential option for the poor in, uh, in liberation theology. And we see that that's where God's on the move. Now what that means is... The temple is literally where God dwells. And if God dwells and is incarnated among the poor, the outcast, the oppressed, if people want to commune with God, they better go to where God is showing up. And that's not the temple, right? So there's a sense in which instead of us, uh, instead of we queers begging to be led into the temple, as if they have power over our relationship with God. Now, culturally, a lot of people think that's true because they, the leaders, want to claim that they have a monopoly over God, and that's not how it works. So instead yeah. of begging to be led into the temple on their terms, we should actually be proclaiming the boldness of God to say, look, all of you who want to commune with God, you got to come over to where the queers are and see what God is doing powerfully among us. Mm -hmm. And so the, the reason we want to have the inclusiveness of the temple is not so that queers will be worthy of the temple, but so that the temple will be worthy of queers, and it is not at this point. Nice, that is a bar. And I don't wanna sound like I'm gaslighty, like, oh no, we can get along without the temple, and it's okay to, to have this injustice. It is not okay to have this injustice, because what hurts one of us hurts all of us, it's a yeah. big mess, but what I'm saying is the way of reframing it back to where the priority is about God dwelling already with queers. What other thoughts about section 109? Are we ready for what I'm going to say? I, I guess there's one more thing I want to say about all this uh, with regard to the temple. It needs to be acknowledged that this work of uh, building the temple occurred in the midst of a lot of physical hostility to the mm -hmm, saints. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Joseph had already been beaten by a mob when this prayer was given. Uh, you know, some other saints had uh, experienced physical hostility. I think Sidney Rigdon was also beaten up by a mob prior to uh, mm-hmm. this prayer given, mm-hmm. and during the course of the building of this temple, there was a there was real risk to uh, to doing what the Lord commanded to the point where the saints, particularly the leaders, were literally putting their uh, putting their lives on the line to feel the Lord's commandments. Right. Not only that, but uh, several of the saints had given of their substance. They had uh, mm-hmm. given of their substance in their poverty so that the temple could be built. We see that in, uh, what is this? Verse 5, it looks like. Uh, the Lord, uh, In the introduction of the prayer, Joseph Smith says, For thou knowest that we have done this work, through great tribulation and out of our mm-hmm. poverty, mm-hmm. we have given of our substance to build a house to thy name, that the Son of Man might have a place to manifest himself to his people. So they're doing what the Lord commands at great cost to them, at great financial cost, at, vi- at great risk of their physical safety. Right. Um, you know, I want to bring this, bring this up because uh, discipleship can be and has always been this kind of costly. Uh, Jesus, on more than one occasion, mm-hmm. invited disciples to forsake land, to uh, forsake family, to forsake financial stability. Uh, I was just rereading uh, the Old Testament and reading about uh, Abraham, and Abraham had to leave behind, you know, land, you know, his kindred. He had to leave behind his father's house. And, you know, even physical safety to follow him. He basically became a refugee for the sake of Christ. You know what I'm saying? There's always some kind of cost ascribed to following following Christ. Now, many people, yeah, many people accepted that call. Some people did not. Um, But, you know, we got some great examples in the scriptures of this, like Abraham, like Esther, who literally said, if I perish, I perish, was ready to die to save Mm -hmm. her people. Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith, he was ready to die for this work. And uh, one of my favorite quotes that I've heard in this last week at school was actually a uh, Bonhoeffer quote, who once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, most of us won't have to do this. Most of us won't have to die for this stuff, but that the saints were willing to impoverish themselves and work amid the threat of physical violence should tell us something about their discipleship, about their commitment to this work that they were doing. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not also, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't virtue in protecting yourself from hostile spaces. I would never ask somebody to remain in an abusive relationship uh, for the sake of hoping that it might work out. There's right. some nuance here that I don't really have a lot of time or haven't put enough thought in really parsing. But I do want to say that discipleship doesn't necessarily mean entering hostile spaces for everybody. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. for me at this point in my life, it happens to mean that, you know, you and I, Derek, we are in a functionally hostile space as members of this church. But for someone else, that is probably not their ministry. That is probably not how they're going to worship. They probably don't need to put themselves in a hostile space every Sunday or, you know, every so often just for the sake of uh, Christ. Um, they may not be called to that in the way that we are. And I want to make space for that. But like I said, there's a whole lot of uh, nuance there that I'm not really getting to, but I just want to highlight uh, the example 
of uh, Joseph Smith mm-hmm. and the leaders here and the early saints who literally put themselves at physical risk, at financial risk for the sake of following Christ. And there is something, uh, there's something beautiful to be found in there. Yeah, that reminds me of two things. In terms yes, of sir. when call, Christ calls us, uh, he bids us to come and die. That may be literally true, but there also are certain parts of us that need to die if we're gonna follow Christ. Like my whiteness yes, needs to die, my yeah. ableism needs to die, my complicity in the in patriarchy needs to die, and in the end, I'll be more alive if those parts of me die and I'm raised with Christ mm-hmm. in this life. Mm-hmm. We'll all be better off. And the second thing is, what you're saying about the hostility towards the saints in the 1830s is just another example of God moving on the margins because here God was powerfully moving on the margins, the social, economic, and educational margins of frontier America. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't appear in the halls of power, the halls of education. He appeared among people who were despised of the world and not very well educated for the most part, not very well off for the most part. We had a few um, more well-off people. But in general, this wasn't in the center. God shows up on the margins. That's how it always is. And that's where God is welcome and that's where God exists and that's where God is most powerfully revealed. Yes, sir. So yes, speaking sir. of all this, I want to I want to go through uh, verses 7 and 8 of section 109. All right. And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning even by study and also by faith. Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. In light of our discussion of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, I'm going to take a long detour, even longer than normal, and discuss (laughs) a biblical theology of the temple. Now, why am I doing this? Because, because you love the Bible. Well, yes, but if you look at this, we're supposed to study out of the best books. We're supposed to seek words of wisdom. We're supposed to engage in a house of learning. And that's, that's I think, very, very empowering for those on the margins. I'll, I'll get to that in, in just a second. But I want to say I'm sorry. Kind of one of these I'm sorry but not sorry things. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sorry for taking so much time. But my assumption is that many Latter-day Saints might not be familiar with these texts that I'm about to quote. I'm probably going to quote like eight or nine different texts pretty substantially from the Bible. And they might not know these well, or they might have read them, but never taken seriously the liberatory implications that are implicit in these texts. So forgive me for this. this is, but this is really important to me, and I think it will be very helpful to the listeners. Many listeners, and we... We've talked about this before. They want to know how to make a difference. They want to know, like, I'm in a ward that's not very accepting. How can I make change without causing backlash? Or how can I get make change without jeopardizing relationships and my ability to make a difference? And here's how. The best way of doing this, in my experience, is to know the scriptures well and to teach them well. And this is safe for you. 
and unsafe for injustice. Because you can't ever justly get in trouble for teaching what the scriptures are teaching. If you are teaching these texts in your classes, in your young men, young women, gospel doctrine, wherever, if you put these in your talks, no one can legitimately critique you for just teaching what's there. So this is empowering, and that's why I'm going to, I feel that taking a long time on these is justified. And I'm actually taking a long time talking about why I'm taking a long time, so maybe I should stop that. <laughs> but anyway. All good. The main point of all of these texts is that the basic premise of the Bible about the temple is that the temple is instrumental, temporary, and ultimately obsolete because it is secondary in purpose. And what do I mean by instrumental? It's just a tool. Yeah. It is an instrument to get somewhere else. It's not the final goal. The temple is sacramental in nature, meaning that what it points to is far, far more important than what it is on its own. And what it points to is Christ and the Zion community that should be built in his name. So the temple has no independent meaning or significance, which is quite contrary to some elements of our Latter-day Saint culture, right? So anyway, let's start this tour of the Bible with John's vision of the New Jerusalem. He says in Revelation 21, verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So the temple's going to be gone. The temple is going to be obsolete. It's going to be replaced with direct dwelling. And this is direct dwelling is already inaugurated among the queer people, like I was saying. So basically, the temple is not ultimate. It will be gone. It is a scaffold that is helpful to get where we are going if used correctly. But it will be dismantled and the real will remain. The real substance will remain. Right. So in terms right. of inaugurated eschatology, that's a phrase you can use if you want to sound like you know what you're talking about. Already looking it up. In terms of inaugurated eschatology, which is in contrast to future eschatology, we're seeing the promised vision as already being implemented or begun. And when we see it that way, it should qualify our approach to the temple today. So let's look at what the Hebrew prophets said about temple worship. Come, listen to a prophet's voice. We will hear from Hosea, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, Jeremiah, Jesus, and Paul. So I'm sorry, but not sorry that I have to go through this. <laughs> and I want <laughs> to say right. that when we talk about the Hebrew prophets and the Bible and the temple, I need to name that temple worship looks a little different in different dispensations. That's fine, right? But the principles are the same. The ultimate moral and ethical principles and the purpose of the temple is the same. So in biblical times, temple worship consisted of sacrificial offerings of song, grain, animals, and so forth. It wasn't just animal sacrifices. You brought uh, the first fruits of your crops. You also brought particular songs to a temple worship, and we see these in the Psalms. And looking at this, we're going to go through a number of quotations in the Bible, some of them quite extensive, and we're going to look at what God's priorities are. So I'll be quoting from the New English Translation. 
First is Hosea 6, verse 6. And this is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 9, 13 and 12, 7. Hosea says, For I delight in faithfulness, not simply in sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply in whole burnt offerings. And we see that with the parallelism here, a double emphasis on there's something more important than checking off the ordinances. It's about transformation. It's about how you come out of the temple with faithfulness, with an eye towards God. Now, I'm going to quote the first seven verses of Isaiah 6, where you get to see a critical narrative about the power of the temple. So here's what Isaiah says. And this is really Isaiah's call narrative. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a high elevated throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. His majestic splendor fills the entire earth. The sound of their voices shook the door frames, and the temple was filled with smoke. I said, Woe to me! I am destroyed, for my lips are contaminated by sin. I live among people whose lips are contaminated by sin. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. But then one of the seraphs flew toward me. In his hand was a hot coal he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Look, this coal has touched your lips. Your evil is removed. Your sin is forgiven. Now where I'm going with this is really the set-apartness of the temple and how sacred of a responsibility it is to come into the Lord's presence you get a sense of your sin, you get a sense of your injustice and the communal injustice of your people. Like Isaiah is literally, that's what he names. He encounters God in the temple and his first thought is, is my sin or the sin of my people going to conflict with the almighty presence of a just God filled with power and glory here in the temple? There's a there's a little bit of a mismatch here of like, is this even appropriate? Because the whole idea of being set apart or sanctified is that you have this place that is wholly other to use um to use Karl Barth's word holy meaning w h o l y completely other completely foreign to the way we normally do things and i think you have to take this seriously when you go into the temple and later we're going to see how people don't quite actually take the temple seriously if they don't connect it to issues of how we live together in community. Now I'm going to move on to Amos, and this is a very famous quotation by Amos, uh, who was, uh, we should just read the whole book of Amos about social justice. But anyway, here's two verse, uh, three verses, uh, verses 22 through 24. Here is what the Lord says in Amos. Even if you offer me burnt and grain offerings, I will not be satisfied. I will not look with favor on your peace offerings of fattened calves. Take away from me your noisy songs. I don't want to hear the music of your stringed instruments. Justice must flow like the torrents of water, righteous actions like a stream that never dries up. What do you think the contrast is here, and how do you see this? 
The immediate contrast I see is the uh, focus on justice as an end, which should be an outgrowth of our temple worship, whereas justice isn't an explicit part of the conversation with Latter-day Saints when we talk about the temple. There is certainly an implicit justice in the vicarious ordinances we perform in the temple, and that's beautiful because we're providing opportunity for our dead to receive these ordinances that they didn't have opportunity for in this life. There also may be a place for stringed instruments and noisy songs, but if there's no justice coming from that kind of worship, then the Lord clearly doesn't seem to want it. Now, I want to approach this with as much nuance as I can. I mean, there's not actually time for me to do that properly, but, you know, here, here's a less nuanced take for the sake of time. Culturally speaking, the focus on performative faith, for example, serving missions, having a temple recommend, receiving temple ordinances, and going to the temple often, those things seem greater than a focus on a faith that brings about justice to the oppressed, a faith where saying black lives matter is not controversial, a faith that challenges white supremacy and patriarchy, the very engines of racism, queer phobia, misogyny, ableism, and you know, and other things. Uh, in our culture, there are certain metrics and uh, milestones that we view as signals of Mormon respectability, like going to the temple. And uh, it is too often treated as the end goal. That's not to say there isn't virtue in being able to enter the house of the Lord or in going on a mission or in getting married in the temple. But if these experiences don't lead us to live sanctified lives concerned about Christ's justice, uh, or rather, if we care more about the teachings, that, uh, if we care... If we care more about these metrics rather than what the metrics are supposed to signify, then the temple and these other metrics become something of an idol because we put those things above the first and second great commandments. I believe this is why the Lord isn't interested in noisy songs and stringed instruments and fatted calves. These things probably aren't bringing the justice that the Lord wants, that the Lord has asked us for. And in the context of Amos, he's really calling the nation of Israel to collective repentance around their primarily economic injustice. And of mm. course, this is what, what Dr. King quoted this verse so famously. He's calling Christians, especially in this country, to repentance. Like, how can you be a Christian and not take justice seriously? So then I'm going to move on to Micah, and this is this is pretty famous. And Micah is asking um, a hypothetical question of like, what should I do? Should I even offer human sacrifice to appease God? Is that what God wants? Like, do I need to sacrifice more? And here's what here's what Micah says: With what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as payment for my rebellion, my offspring, my own flesh and blood for my sin? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord really wants from you. He wants you to carry out justice to love faithfulness, and to live obediently before your God. Woo! Mm. 
And that's why I'm quoting this in the New English translation to give us a little fresh perspective on this because otherwise it can just wash over us. Micah here is testifying about what's really important. It's not the temple worship. It's not the going through the motions. It's actual justice. And we see this, of course, uh, in the sheep and goats judgment in Matthew 25. We're not going to be judged on, well, did you check off the right ordinances? What matters is, did you feed the poor? Did you visit those in prison? Did you take care of the sick? That's what matters. So let's go on to a long passage from Jeremiah. It's uh, Jeremiah's, one of Jeremiah's sermons about the temple. Oh, this is long, but it's worth it. The Lord said to Jeremiah, Stand in the gate of the Lord's temple and proclaim this message. Listen to the Lord's message, all you people of Judah who have passed through these gates to worship the Lord. The Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, Change the way you have been living and do what is right. If you do, I will allow you to continue to live in this land. Stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says, We are safe. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. You must change the way you have been living and do what is right. You must treat one another fairly. Stop oppressing resident foreigners who live in your land children who have lost their fathers, and women who have lost their husbands. Stop killing innocent people in this land. Stop paying allegiance to other gods that will only bring about your ruin. If you stop doing these things, I will allow you to continue to live in this land that I gave to your ancestors as a lasting possession. But just look at you. You are putting your confidence in a false belief that will not deliver you. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery, you lie when you swear on oath, you sacrifice to the god Baal, you pay allegiance to other gods whom you have not previously known. Then you come and stand in my presence in this temple I have claimed as my own and say, we are safe. Ooh. You think you are so safe that you go on doing all those hateful sins. Close quote. That was all Jeremiah's Whoa. words. You, it sounded like me, right? But that's Jeremiah speaking. But it was real, bro. Like, shoot. Okay, Whew. this, if you just translate a couple words, could be spoken by a prophet of the Lord to the Latter-day Saints today. Like, the killing of the innocent. We see this with Black Lives Matter. We, as a people are paying allegiance to other gods. And it's no longer these, like, idols like Baal. It's the idols of white supremacy and the hoarding of wealth and sexism and ableism. All of these are idols because they take something other than God and make that their ultimate concern. Mm -hmm. We see this at how desperate they get when their fundamental injustices are threatened, right? So... I, I don't really have much more to say than Jeremiah says here. Like he could, there's so many Latter-day Saints that think that because they went through the temple and they're basically doing everything that's on their calling checklist and checking off these external things, they think they're okay, but we're still not treating one another fairly within the church and even within the temple. 
Jeremiah says, you must treat one another fairly. We are not doing this. We're not doing right by uh, folks of color, uh, disabled folks, women, uh, trans folks, other queer folks. Like, we're not treating one another fairly. And so many of them think that, oh, the temple of the Lord is here, or we're safe because we've, we've got this temple. And, and Jeremiah's like, no, you're completely wrong about that. And this connects really with what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 27, which you've quoted a number of times. Woe to you, experts in the law, and you perushim. I'm using perushim, uh, the Hebrew word for Pharisees, because I don't want to have all this resonance with the word Pharisee. But woe to you, experts in the law, and you perushim. Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside but inside are full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. So much of our church culture focuses on the superficial appearances, having things, having things look pretty, having your life look put together, having beautiful families, getting your ordinances done, being sealed in the temple, and so forth. You can tell based on people's talks. You don't hear talks about... This week, I dismantled racism. You hear talks like, this week, I paid my tithing. This week, I went to the temple. This week, I did, like, yeah, that's not what matters. Listen to Jeremiah. So much of our focus culturally in the church is on our public image and checking items off on a checklist and not on real internal transformation that leads to a prophetic witness that will startle and disturb the world. Many people rely on their ordinances and take comfort in the ordinances to know they're standing before God, to know that they're going to see Grandma again. People will think they are okay because they've been sealed or because they've received the second anointing. That is a lie that needs to get sent back to Satan, the father of lies. The Apostle Paul said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I receive no benefit. This is 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. But you really should read the whole chapter. And I could extend this to say and translate it to the modern day by saying, if I get sealed in the temple but don't do the work of dismantling racism, then it doesn't count. Right? The temple isn't magic. If you've gotten all the ordinances done but still oppress the marginalized, then your ordinances don't count for anything. The ordinances will never trick the living God. I'm going to say that again. The ordinances will never trick the living God. Our doctrine is clear on this. Our culture needs to catch up with our sources on this. God is not like Zeus, who was tricked by Prometheus. And let me pause in case people don't know the story. Prometheus tricked Zeus when he... Um, when he put together two sacrifices, he put one uh, with the real tasty meat covered with hide on one pile, and he took the bones of the sacrifice and covered it with glistening, lovely animal fat, which I like animal fat. It tastes good. 
And so Zeus was tricked by picking the pile of bones. And from then on, when uh, the Greeks offered sacrifices, they ate the meat and then sacrificed the fat and the bones to, to the gods, right? And so that's the story of why they did their sacrifice that way. But Zeus got tricked by Prometheus. The living God doesn't get tricked. You can't like cover up your racism with the ordinances and think God's not gonna see through it, okay? If you go through the temple and don't come out as an anti-racist, then you didn't go through the temple. In the temple, Ooh. what? Nah, sorry, I just needed a moment. Oh, I needed to, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm serious about sorry, this. Sorry, go ahead. In the temple, we learn that God loves diversity and created diversity, that all of humanity is one family in the image of God, and that all of us are intended to fill the measure of our creation and have joy therein. The temple is a house of learning, and some people go through and didn't learn. Now let's talk about something again. Elder Holland. Let's go back to Elder Holland. Ooh. Elder okay, Holland, man. on one recent occasion, became a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. Right? I Paul says that. Paul the Apostle says, yeah, I could have all gifts of prophecy, all mysteries, all hip it. Like, yeah, okay, Elder Holland has all that. But he became a clanging symbol because he did not speak with biblical love or biblical power on this particular issue on this at this particular time and there is one piece of elder holland's talk that as far as i'm aware no one has analyzed people have missed the implications of this one line that that elder holland said he said we have spent hours discussing what the doctrine of the church can and cannot provide for the individuals and families struggling over this difficult issue. Now let's talk about this. Let me just read this statement again. We have spent hours, and this we is, I'm guessing, uh, the, the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. We have spent hours discussing what the doctrine of the church can and cannot provide the individuals and families struggling over this difficult issue, and, and the issue, of course, is LGBTQ inclusion. Now, there's a problem with, with this. He should have said that and then followed up with 30 minutes of detailed exposition of what they think the doctrine of the church can and cannot provide. But he didn't do that. He just moved on. Why doesn't he enumerate the truths that he thinks they have? If, he actually, if they actually would name it, they would provide a lot of comfort and security for LGBT people. They would solve so many issues. They would save lives and save families and keep families together if they would give a clear word on this. But they haven't done that. They've been teaching the plan of salvation for straight people and saying, well, we don't really know, like, whatever. Like, they don't, ha they don't talk about whether it will be fixed or not, whether gays should marry women or not, whether trans people should transition. Or, well, they, they've said that they shouldn't transition. But they don't say what's going to happen to you in the afterlife. They don't say what the doctrine can and cannot provide. They will not provide a clear word on this. The temple is a house of order, so why don't they speak on this in clear, unmistakable words of power and order? 
right now we as a church are, are in disorder because they refuse to speak clearly on this. The only thing they speak clearly on is to say no gay sex and no gay marriage. Other than that, they have no public uh, anything, no public presentation on exactly what the plan of salvation looks for. And they spent hours on it. I this this is uh, this boggles my mind. I mean, I'm I'm not quite so mad that they're getting it wrong because people are going to get stuff wrong. I'm going to get stuff wrong, right? People are, you know, people mistakes happen, right? But what boggles me is they think they have the truth, and they've spent hours discussing it, and it's essentially a bluff. You know how Senator McCarthy in in the 1950s said, "Oh, I have this big list of of communists in the State Department," and then he never mm-hmm. shared the list. Right. Like, what's on that list? Who's on that list, right? Elder Holland is, we've spent discussing, and we're talking about what the doctrine of the church can and cannot provide, and then refuses to provide us with what they discussed. And I think that, that's that's not love, right? At least give us the best you've got. Yeah. And And, and I think part of this is, that what Elder Holland is, is subtly revealing is that the brethren are not united on this, and w- which is why they haven't given a public, clear approach. Maybe some of the brethren think it will be fixed in the next life. Maybe some are saying, you know what, we have no sources that even say that. We have no evidence, no revelation to say that, and it's just a, an assumption that, that it, this will be fixed, right? Right. I just think this is a clear, clear example of the brethren aren't exactly united on this. And three, the biggest problem with this is that queer people aren't in the in the we. It says we have spent mm-hmm. hours. As straight people, straight cisgender people mm-hmm. discuss why do they why are they even discussing us? There mm-hmm. should be queer people in the room in the right. decision making process. We're the ones who bear the cost for these decisions. We should be the ones to go before the Lord and figure this out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've said a lot. Now, do you have any reactions to this? No, not immediately. Okay. Um, except to say amen to everything that you've said. Amen. Okay, well, thanks. But, but the, anyway, the bottom line is the temple is temporary. It's going to be gone in the New Jerusalem it's only secondary in importance. It's only provisional in nature to get you where you're going. If you rely on the temple as some type of ultimate gotcha to trick God, it's not going to work. Your sins are going to catch up with you, just like Isaiah realized when he was confronted with this uh, earth-shattering glory of God, right? Let's take the temple seriously and figure out how we can dismantle the injustices in our church. It's great, man. Uh, you've spoken a lot of truth in there. Thank you for taking that detour because, uh, you know, I think it's very important that people understand in these conversations about the temple and in these two historic and doctrinally significant events that revolve around the temple that we need to remember, you know, what's important about the temple and what the temple is supposed to point us to. And I suppose just as important what the temple is not going to do for us or how it is not going to you know, shield us from certain responsibilities, shield us from certain sins, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. stand as a substitute uh, of any kind uh, 
you know, for those parts of ourselves that, uh, you know, are, 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 are less savory, I would, I would suppose. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for this, uh, little detour that we've taken. It was, uh, you know, like you said, it was a long detour, but I feel like it was a necessary mm-hmm. one because it helped us really understand, uh, the, uh, the theology of these temples, temples that we have sacrificed yeah. uh, immensely to build, at least, uh, the early saints have that we've put ourselves on the line for, and it is just mm-hmm. a tragedy to uh, realize that these things, these temples, these buildings that uh, the Lord has commanded his people to build, that people had sacrificed so immensely for, it is a tragedy when we don't fully understand their purpose or when we mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. idolize the temple in a way that not only keeps us from their true purpose, but actually like pushes us in the other direction. Um, so I'm I'm really glad that you made sure that we remember what the purpose of the temple is, what yeah. the theology of the temple is, and uh, ultimately what we should be gaining uh, in our pursuit of uh, of the power that the temple actually promises us. And that gets back to one of Satan's tactics, and Satan is not going to really tempt good people su- successfully with gross evils, right? No Latter-day Saint today is going to bow down to a little wooden idol. I, I don't think so in, in such a direct way. So instead of something so obvious, Satan is going to succeed if he tempts us to worship that which is second best, right? Not something evil. He's not going to use evil, but he's going to use some secondary good, to displace and elbow out our ultimate allegiance to God. So yeah, God is first, but things like family or temple or prophets or apostles or even the scriptures can displace God's ultimacy as the Lord of our life. And when that happens, Satan is using something good, something second best in a way that very successfully tempts people. Because yeah, families are good, but if you worship a certain ideal as your uh, a certain ideal of the family is your ultimate goal and use god as just your your ticket to get there you've really fallen into satan's hands mm-hmm. or claws or whatever satan has whatever satan got <laughs> yeah okay so let's move on to section 110 i want to hear what you have to say yeah um i i love paying attention to uh, Jesus's introductions of himself, because in these introductions, he's reminding us who he is, what he's done, what he's capable of, what we're capable of with him, and probably a lot more things. Um, the way Jesus introduces himself here sets the tone for his second best, for this second best Easter in human history, according, uh, according to our church. Priesthood keys are being restored. Long prophesied events from the Hebrew Bible are taking place in this revelation, like uh, like the return of Elijah. This revelation is on April 3rd in 1836. Folks were beginning Passover Seder the day this revelation was given, the day Elijah came. But anyway, let me read this, uh, this from verse 4. I am he who liveth, I am he who was slain. I love that Jesus introduces himself like this because 
to highlight that he overcame death itself just before one of the most significant revelations in church history in the middle of some pretty intense persecution where the saints would have a right to be discouraged, the Lord basically said to Oliver and Joseph, they killed me, but here I am alive anyway. Like it's a flex, more than his usual intros of Alpha and Omega, creator of the heavens and the earth, first and last, etc. In my opinion, it's a pointed acknowledgement that Christ and anyone on his side can overcome the most evil acts by the most powerful people, just like he did. This part of Christ is at the heart of so many black Christian churches. It's the spirit of the black proverb, making a way out of no way. That's basically what Christ did when he resurrected. He made a way out of no way. I don't think we've seen this introduction in the in the previous sections, and I'd like to believe that pointing out this part of his identity and history could be deliberate, considering where the saints are in their history. A subtle reminder that to worship he who lives though he was slain is to have access to the power that can make a way out of no way. Yeah. The only thing I want to say about that is the sort of the ultimacy of Christ. I am the first and the last. That's what matters, right? I am he who liveth, I am he who is slain. Like you said, the resurrection is liberatory, not just for the black community, but for the queer and trans community, in part because it's a coming out of the closet of death, of the tomb, right? It is a new life. When you come out as queer, you get a new life. It, and it's a life that's worth living, especially compared to what it might have been. And for many trans folks, the resurrection validates bodies. It validates the transformation of bodies. It validates the union of body and soul. And I think there's a, there's a sense in, in which, um, you know, many trans folks have looked at Jesus's scars as in resonance with the scars of top surgery, right? that those scars remain, but that is part of the process of becoming who uh, who you really are. Um, and then the last thing I wanna do is talk about one of my favorite hymns, The Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning. This was sung at the original Kirtland Temple dedication, and also it was sung at my baptism. Unfortunately, you were not at my baptism uh, because we didn't, I didn't know you yet, but you know how they let people uh, share their testimony after they've been baptized? Yeah. Yeah, mine was 12 minutes long. Of course it was. Of course it was. <laughs> Derek is also the only person I know that had a talk after his ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood. I'm just like, this is what we doing now. First of all, there was like 50 people there at this event. <laughs> oh yeah, you were and there And then for Derek that. gave a whole, yeah, I was there for that. And then Derek went and gave a whole talk after his ordination to the Melchizedek yeah, priesthood. Well, we, we gotta talk. There's always a talk, okay? There's always gotta be a talk. Always gotta be some. Always gotta say some. Yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it would be beneficial to just go through and do a close reading, not now, but this is your homework. I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I give, give homework. Go through line by line and look at the wording of the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. 
um, the latter day glory begins to come forth. It has not completely can't come forth. It's beginning to come forth. The visions and blessings of old are returning. Uh, we'll sing and we'll shout with the armies of heaven. By the way, the Lord of what gets translated as the Lord of hosts, Tsevaot, um, Adonai Tsevaot, that really means armies, a, a company of armies. Uh, I like verse 2. The Lord is extending the saints' understanding. And that stretching and growing process is not is not uh, straightforward for a lot of saints. A lot of saints think that we know everything and and we understand everything and we, we're all set. And, and there's never been a generation in the church where we knew every detail of the plan of salvation and we still don't and even when we have the revelation that expand extends the saints understanding on queer and trans people we're still not going to know everything um the knowledge and power of god are expanding the veil over the earth is beginning to burst just go through um and then connect this with what the hebrew prophets have been saying about the point like we'll call in our solemn assemblies in spirit and just say, like, what is the purpose of our temple worship? And what does our temple worship do if we don't actually do the justice that God wants? Anyway, so go through on your own and prayerfully consider and sing the the Spirit of God. And that gets back to a point about worship is we don't have a good a good sort of structure around and, and dialogue around worship. We don't really talk about worship very much and have a worshipful attitude towards God or figure out like our, we talk about meetings, right? And you can do meetings as worship. The Quakers do it very well. Their meetings actually are worshipful. Even their business meetings are, are worship in a sense. So yeah, we should talk more someday about what true worship looks like. And I think songs are great. Uh, part of that so basically i think now i've said all i've gonna say see we better stop yeah. before i think of something else okay well don't think okay well we both know that's not going to happen especially if i say anything else and i was just gonna say uh we kind of talked about this when we uh what section was it but when we talked about what worship uh looks like briefly in our conversation on section 93 and uh in a closer reading of that text we can certainly conclude that, uh, you know, one of the many ways or one of the best ways we can uh, worship Christ is by emulating him. And, uh, you know, we talked about education as a means of getting to that, uh, uh, of uh, committing ourselves to that emulation. But there are several other things that we can do uh, to emulate Christ or to put ourselves in a position to be able to uh, emulate Christ. So I think uh, our definition of worship is left intentionally open-ended, but I do think it's a conversation we need to have uh, more often if we are going to have a more complete, a more honest, and a more, uh, I, I suppose, intentional experience of worship when we, just by simply talking about, uh, you know, you know, what it looks like or how we can emulate Christ or how we can put ourselves in the best positions to uh, emulate Christ at our meetings and outside of them as well. Well, before we go ahead and wrap things up, I uh, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer a new podcast partner that we want to put you on to called uh, the Fireside Podcast with uh, Blair Hodges, friend of the pod. It features in-depth interviews 
about, about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. Uh, where can folks find us, Derek? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. And you can also find us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also want to say a uh, special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, uh, and also Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media stuff, parsing out the uh, you know the things that stood out to y'all and putting them on dope graphics so we can share our content in more ways than just the podcast. Speaking of which, also want to thank the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including uh, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, by the way, these outlines, they also include... Uh, the podcast from the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes that same week. So you can basically have a, a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the Margin study helps. Uh, the mm -hmm. link to the outlines is also going to be in the show notes as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the transcripts. But there is a, a, an easy-to-remember URL for the outlines. Is there not, Derek? Right. It's tinyurl.com slash outlines. Yeah, nice and easy for y'all. Uh, do we got any events coming up or anything we got to put the put the folks on to? I don't think so. Excellent, excellent. Affirmation conference, that's all done, right? Right, that's all done. And excellent. our final book, book club discussion with Blair Osler went really well. Uh, yeah, so, so thanks for that. Yes, thanks for you guys who uh, showed up to the uh, final book club and, of course, to, to Blair for joining us for a discussion on her book and, uh, you know, answering our questions. That was, uh, that was wonderful. If you haven't gotten the book yet or read through the book yet, definitely uh, highly recommend it. Um, hopefully we'll get to have Blair uh, back on so we can further discuss the reaction to their book and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and how they feel about the reception, so... Oh, I and, look forward to that. And all these listeners, I don't want you to think, oh, I've heard Derek, so I already know queer. No, this is different because Blair's approach is very much complementary to mine. It, it, it does not, we do not duplicate one another. We don't really conflict exactly, but we're not coming at it from the same perspective. And so we're addressing different things and we're stronger with all of these queer approaches rather than just, so don't think, oh, I've, I've listened to Derek, so I'm done. Blair has a lot of great things to say, and we all, and I've learned from their book, so make sure that you check it out. Indeed, indeed. Well, if there's nothing else, thank you for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we meet again next week, and maybe next week I'll have some jokes. <laughs> I'm about to say, you didn't have any jokes today. I'm very proud of you, Derek. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that's because I love you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about all that, but, you know, <laughs> I do appreciate the kindness okay. that you've shown me today. Well, bye, everyone. I'll see you next week. <laughs>